Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We turn to, again, to John 17. And we'll read 6 through 12. This is the word of the Lord, John 17, 6 through 12. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. So we're back in Jesus' high priestly prayer, it's known as, and we'll focus again on this second section that runs from verse 6 through 19. Uh, This part of the Son of God's prayer is focused on specifically on the ministry of the apostles. Last week I preached to you that our, our lives, as were the apostles' lives and ministry, are to be centered around the Word. Word of God. It does us no good if we stop short of striving for obedience when it comes to God's Word. Jesus gave the apostles the Word, they received the Word, they understood the Word, they believed the Word, and ultimately, they kept the Word. So we too must not be short of obedience when it comes to God's Word. We now pick up the prayer in verse 11. Jesus prays this. He says, I am no, speaking to his father, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So as Jesus did through, throughout the night when he was speaking with his disciples, Those words recorded for us in in the previous, basically, four chapters. He wants the apostles to know very clearly, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Things are going to change here very quickly. He will shortly die. He will be placed in the grave. He will rise. He will spend a few weeks with the disciples. And then he is going to ascend and sit at the right hand of his father where he will stay until... He returns to judge the living and the dead that last great day. 
He has promised the apostles that the Holy Spirit would come to them when he left them. But here he asks the Father to keep them. He's promised throughout that the Spirit come and, you know, work in them. But he's, he's calling to his Father now in heaven and asking him to watch over them. Now, it, it may be that he does, not, he does that exclusively through the means of the Holy Spirit. Um, but there is something especially comforting to know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in keeping his people from falling away, from going after false doctrine or giving into temptation, renouncing the faith when persecution comes, or being slain by the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Father keeps them through his power, love, and wisdom. The Son keeps them through his intercession for them at the right hand of God, and the Spirit keeps them through dwelling within them. That's the trifecta of protection, right? The triune power of God is at work keeping his children from all the dangers of the wicked world. The apostles faced all of these assaults, and perhaps most fiercely from the devil himself as he witnessed these men carrying out this message of the gospel that he hated so much. And so Jesus is engaging in this prayer the whole Trinitarian power to protect and keep these 11 little dusty men. In verse 12, Jesus says that while he was with them, he was able to keep them from destruction. In fact, he guarded them, Scripture says. He guarded them and not one of them perished. Not one of them perished. Not a single one of those destined to be an apostle perished. But the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, he kept the eleven that had been set apart to carry the good news into the world, and there was only one of the twelve that perished. But that man had a purpose other than the one laid out for the other eleven. He had a purpose. God had a significant purpose for the son of perdition. His purpose, dear brothers and sisters, was to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. That was his purpose. That's why he was born. It was his work to do. His purpose settled even before he existed, right, was to turn against Jesus. Turn against a man that he learned from for three years. Turn against and reject Jesus, betray Jesus, to serve the enemies of Christ, to become friends with the enemies of Christ. That man was Judas Iscariot. God had a wonderful plan for his life. But it's not so wonderful. Now we learn a number of things about Judas. First, we learn that he, was, he has a name... Other than Judas, he's called the son of perdition. You probably know that word perdition. It means it's, it's another way of speaking of eternal destruction or damnation. What does it mean, though, for Jesus to call Judas the son of perdition? 
Well, Jesus is using a Hebrew idiom. When the Hebrews wanted to state that someone was absolutely given over to something or devoted to something, they would say that he was the son of that something. In 1 Samuel, David says to Saul's servant, you must surely die. That is how our English translations put it. But the Hebrew would be literally, you are surely sons of death. That is, in fact, the margin reading in your New American Standard Bible. In fact, you should always insert the marginal reading in the text because they're always better than what they decided to put in the text. Okay? Saying that Saul's servants were sons of death meant that they were most assuredly going to die. Now, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. There's no stronger way to to say that someone is devoted to something. The Pharisees are devoted to hell. Hell is their father, and they are its sons. In the case of Judas, Jesus is saying perdition, eternal damnation, is Judas's father. Damnation is such a part of Judas, he was born for damnation. Damnation is his father, he is damnation's son, he is most assuredly damned. Another thing we learn about Judas in our verse this morning is that the perishing of the son of perdition was a fulfillment of Scripture. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture's prophecies were fulfilled by the loss of Judas. In Acts 1, when the apostles are are figuring out what to do with the seat that was abandoned by Judas, tells us exactly what prophecies of Scripture were fulfilled. Psalm 69, 25, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. In Psalm 109.8, let another man take his office. And so it's a fulfillment of Scripture what happens here. Let me also clarify something. It seems as if in this verse Jesus is saying something along these lines. I had the 12 apostles. I was keeping them and I only lost Judas. In other words, Judas was saved and by his own actions fell from grace. Now, if these were the only words we had about these men, this might be a logical conclusion, but in the sermon immediately preceding the prayer during the Last Supper, Jesus makes it clear that Judas was not his, not chosen for salvation, not one of the true apostles. John 13, remember this passage, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's Judas. He, Jesus, knows the ones he has chosen, and the implication is Judas is not. And again, after the prayer we are working through in John 18, 
Jesus again says the same thing, and he, as he's being arrested, he says, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which was spoken of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Jesus did not lose one of those whom the Father had given him. Judas had a different father. His father was perdition. And so it was not one of those given by the Father to the Son. Now let's take a step back. Who was this Judas? Who was this Judas? Was it evident to the others that he was the bad sheep? That he was the unbeliever in the midst of believers? I don't think it was evident. I just don't think it was evident. When the apostles argue about who it was who would betray Jesus, they didn't all stop and say, Judas will. They had no clue, right? They didn't stop and point at at Judas and say, that's an easy one. Each of them, including Judas himself, only said that he knew he wasn't the one who would betray. Surely not I, Lord. Uh, Judas had likely done great works for the Lord. It's likely Judas had performed miracles in Jesus' name. In Matthew chapter 10, we read this. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over the unclean spirit spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Nowhere do we read anything about the apostles returning and saying, what's up with Judas? Judas? I mean, why couldn't he do what we were doing? He's probably doing it. Judas sat at the feet of Jesus for those three glorious years. He went to the same school as the other apostles. Learning from the mouth of the almighty incarnate God, he did incredible works that could only be explained as the very power of God. He most likely preached the name of Jesus and proclaimed the name of Jesus to the Jews who were looking for the coming Messiah. There would likely be some who reflected back on how they came to faith and were astonished that it was through the ministry of Judas. Wow. God used the son of perdition to bring me to faith when he was preaching the gospel. And that man, Judas Iscariot, betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Which, as I understand it, would be about four months' wages. And so, on the average American salary, that's probably about $12,500. How much, how much he got for this transaction. But you see, there was another thing we need to know about Judas, and that's that he loved money. He loved money. His sin was loving money, which we know from Scripture is the root of all kinds of evil. The evil, in this case, leading to the betraying of Jesus Christ himself. And we read about this this sin of Judas in John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany. You know, this is not long prior to the events we're reading about. 
to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with them. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Man, that's some expensive perfume. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the given and and given to poor people. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, duh, but because he was a thief and he had put the and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. All through those 3 years, he's just taken a 20, a 50, some quarters, Every day, putting them in his pocket. The love of money, we could say, led to the most spectacular sin that has ever been committed. The betrayal of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Piper, John Piper writes, I think the most spectacular sin ever committed was the murder of the Son of God. That begs the question, which sin in the murder was the most spectacular? Was it the deriving of the nails, the thrusting of the spear, the expediency of Pilate, the mockery of Herod, the weaving of the thorns and pushing them down on his head with glee? Was it Peter's denial? Was it the abandonment of all the twelve? Or Judas who kissed him for 30 pieces of silver? And he says, if you force me to choose one of those, it would be Judas. Because of the combination of evils in the heart of Judas, he held the money bag and was called a thief. His love of money was so great that he betrayed a man that he had lived with for three years, the very son of God. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Then he kissed him as a sign of betrayal. In fact, the sin of Judas is so bad Jesus says, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. You know who spoke right after Jesus said those words? Judas did. He said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And do you know what Judas already had in his possession when he said that? 30 pieces of silver. Here's something else we know about Judas. He was a tool of the great hater of God, Satan. In John 6:70, Jesus says, "Did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil?" In Luke chapter 22, we read about how Satan entered into Judas. In John 13, we read about how the devil had already put into Judas's heart 
the will to betray Jesus. And so Satan is using Judas as a tool to get to Jesus. Here's something else we know about Judas. We know how his story ends. Scripture says this, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, but they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple sanctuary since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. More fulfillment of prophecy surrounding Judas. But think for a moment about the fact that Judas, the son of perdition, felt remorse at what he had done to Jesus. He felt bad about this. He did it and then he was like, oh, what have I done? He regretted, he lamented, he was saddened by what he had done. It seems like repentance, doesn't it? It seems like repentance. Most of us would have called it repentance, but it is not. Remorse is not repentance. Remorse may precede repentance, but remorse is not repentance, right? Judas does not repent. Peter does repent and is restored. Judas does not repent even though he has remorse. His remorse does not lead him to plea for mercy, to bow before Jesus and ask for forgiveness, to weep bitterly as Peter did. No, Judas's remorse leads him to hang himself from a tree. And don't confuse remorse for sin with repentance for sin. Remorse, sadness, regret, some trouble of mine, angst, may be, by God's mercy, a part or a path that leads to repentance, but it is not repentance, which is a turning, a hatred and a turning from that sin. How can you tell the difference between remorse for sin and repentance for sin? If you stop with remorse for sin, you will mope and never change. If he hadn't hung himself, Judas would have walked around this world like Cain, just hanging his head saying, this is just too much for me. If you repent for your sin, you may have remorse, but it will end with change. Change. 
Real change. Judas was like his father Esau, another son of perdition. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for remorse. No, he had that. He found no place for repentance the text says, though he sought for it with tears. He had the remorse. He lacked the repentance. Now, the last thing I'll say is this. Judas is a lover of money. He's willing to betray even Jesus for a certain figure. He's a tool of Satan who entered, you know, and Satan had entered into his heart. Judas is the very son of perdition whose works fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. And there's one last thing he is, and I've already mentioned it. He is a tool of the Almighty God. The evil that Judas chose himself was chosen for him by God. The entrance of Satan into his heart was superintended by God himself. The prophecies of Scripture were fulfilled in Judas according to the, the unbreakable providence of God. What, God. what Judas intended for evil, God intended for good. What Judas wanted, God decreed. You see what I'm saying here? Judas is responsible God superintends and decrees everything that comes to pass. Judas is responsible. What Judas wanted, God decreed. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. God predetermined it, and wicked sinners decided to do a wicked deed, which was nail Jesus to a cross. The betrayal of Judas led Jesus to the cross. The betrayal of Judas was the final act of the son of perdition, leading his soul to eternal punishment. Does that fact not make you awe at the power of God? It ought. Does that fact not make you break your knees before God and worship Him? That God directs all things, even Judas's rebellion, to His own glory. That is a God to be worshipped and trusted, right? The one who is directing the course of history to His glory. Jesus understood the mind-boggling nature of reality. He also understood that we are so twisted that we might be inclined to say that because God is using all things to his glory, well, we may just as well go on sinning. Let's sin so that grace may abound. I think that is why, as we read, read earlier, he said this, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. In other words, this is going to happen because God has ordained it. It is the fulfillment of his word. Nonetheless, woe to that man who does it. 
Judas, the son of perdition, the tool of Satan, the one naturally inclined to the love of money, the one who is the fulfillment of God's eternal decrees, happily and willfully, listen to those words, happily, willfully, and freely did everything he ever did. It truly would have been better for him if he had never been born. There is no other conclusion we can come to when Jesus hangs together God's providence and Judas's sin. He pronounces a curse on Judas through what he has been doing against Jesus that had been appointed by God. But remember, the providence was God's and the sin was Judas's. That is why Jesus put it as he did. Judas, born for, in a sense, happily living for damnation. Last thing I'll say is this. If you have any sense that your profession of faith in Christ is hypocritical, if you have any sense that your profession in Jesus Christ is hypocritical, that it has been done as a show for someone else, you must repent. You must repent. That is not faith, and that will not save you. If your profession is knowingly hypocritical, you are no better off than Judas. Love the Father and the Son. Believe in His name. Worship your Creator and bow your knees before Him. Make your profession of faith right before God. Believe in Him and do not be a son of Judas. His whole profession was hypocrisy. Judas Iscariot was the son of perdition, the son of destruction, and that is important. And whether or not you want to draw that designation you know, back to the very sovereign purpose of God who has mercy on some and not on others, or you just draw it back to Judas' own choices, it is all very fearful. Yes, God predetermines all things that come to pass. He knows the hairs of your head. He knows how many days he's given you to live and just exactly who he gave to his son. And he has given man a will and he works through secondary means, one of which is your will by which you make real free choices. Upon his death, Upon his death, Judas did not argue with God about what had gone down because he knew he had made all the decisions that led up to and included the betraying of the Son of God. He knew he made those decisions. He freely had made those decisions. He doesn't get up to God and say, I had no choice. Judas was given the word just like the other eleven. But unlike them, and according to his own decisions and his own mind and will, he did not receive, understand, believe, or keep God's word. He turned against it and turned against Jesus who had delivered it. So yes, God was sovereign and even still Judas was responsible. Instead of receiving unfathomable riches in Jesus Christ, he freely chose 30 pieces of silver from the scribes and Pharisees those sons of hell. Instead of 
a conscience filled with the peace of God, he went after his sin to the point where his conscience was so tortured that he silenced it by hanging himself from a tree. Spilling his guts in a field. And as Ryle puts it, it does not mean that Judas was lost in order to fulfill Scripture, but that the Scripture was fulfilled by the loss of Judas. Again, Ryle, reflecting on Judas and his actions, says in this name, says, it shows the desperate hopelessness of anyone who, living in great light and privileges like Judas, misuses his opportunities and deliberately follows the bent of his own sinful inclinations. I think of covenant children, covenant children who have learned the word of God from, from you know, the time that they could understand language. Right? What a hopelessly awful thing to misuse all of those opportunities and then deliberately follow after your own sinful inclinations after you've received warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. What a horrible thing. You would be following your father, Judas. Judas ought always to cause us to contemplate our own lives. Beware if you are misusing your own opportunities and deliberately following the bent of your own sinful inclinations. When we fall into sin, brothers and sisters, as we do, we ought to remember this and pray that God would grant to us repentance and that our conscience would not be seared. If we get to the point where our sin just doesn't really bother us anymore, we are imitating Judas. We really must always remind ourselves of the sinfulness of sin. And as a part of repentance, stoke Stoke the fires of hatred against your sin, against anything that God hates, which is sin. So be very careful when you give yourself over to what you very well know is sin. And if you have no trouble in your conscience following it, watch out. You're ripe for the flaming arrows of the evil one. Sin in the same way over and over without repentance and, and you're cruising down Judas' path. Now one last thing, another of Jesus' petitions working backward a bit is that the apostles may be one, he prays. Did you catch that? Prays that the apostles may be one even as he and his father are one. He's speaking of their unity. Remember, even on this same night, the apostles had already argued with one another about which one of them was the greatest. We read it earlier. They had already entered into the temptation to break into warring rivalries. How horribly common this is in our own hearts, right? Families get broken up into warring factions. Marriages get broken up into warring factions. Elders' boards get broken up into warring factions. Churches broken up into warring factions. Denominations warring factions against one another. And dear brothers and sisters, hear this clearly. That is only wrong if what motivates you to, to division is your own sinful pride. There are reasons why children should break from their parents. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. If your parent tells you you may not worship Jesus, you break away from that parent instantly. That Jesus said, you know, leave houses, brothers, sister, mother, that Jesus said that is all the proof you need that there's a time for breaking things up. Unity is not the be-all, end-all of Christian discipleship. Yes, there is disunity that, that dishonors God. A parent, or there is disunity that honors God. A parent who, for example, forbids his son or daughter to worship God ought to be disregarded. Unity with that kind of sinful ordinance would be sin itself. And we could go through a ton of other examples in this, Right? Take our church, for example. We determine that the theology of revoice movement and, it, and, and its support by the denominational seminary was good reason to break from the PCA. Second time I've mentioned this today. Must be on my mind. And then we turned around and made common cause with Credo Baptist and Evangel Presbytery. Because we thought that that kind of disunity that is bred by disfellowshipping genuine brothers and sisters in Christ that differ with us on timing and mode of baptism grieves the Lord. There's a season for everything, right? There's a season for everything. And too often unity has made this the, the, the be-all, end-all of everything. Right, But there is a time for disunity, okay? There is a time for disunity. But there is and should be a concerted effort to be united, which is what we have done in Evangel Presbyterian, bringing together two prideful groups into one, Pado-Baptists and Credo-Baptists. And we, we're saying to them, huh, let's try and live together. Let's live together. Let's make everybody who's crotchety and prideful in our congregations mad because we did this. And some of you are mad at us for that. You hate Credo Baptists. How pathetic is that? I love me some Credo Baptists. Timing and mode of the application of baptism. That's the sort of things that divides us into factions, right? And it grieves the Lord. But, but a movement that says that sanctification is dead, you don't have to repent of your sins, and you can get your flame on and, and live as a woman even though you're a man. Oh, we should just make common cause with that, you know? That's just differing interpretations of the Westminster Standards. The prayer that Jesus makes here is a prayer that I believe is fulfilled in our willingness to bring together in one body those who have differing views of timing and mode of baptism. I truly believe this. And if, you know, um, again, if, if your Presbyterian undies get in a bundle, take it up with John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon when you meet them in heaven. You know, argue with them. Don't argue with me. You just have to wait a little bit. All this to say that unity is actually very important. 
Unity around the justifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is very important, but there is unity that dishonors God and unity that honors God. Unity should never be at the cost of overlooking gross sins or heresies. Never. Disunity should never come over non-essentials. It should not. And so that's thus far the prayer of Jesus in John 17. We'll take it up, Lord willing, again next time. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us in our walk, in our worship, in our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that each one of us here today would make sure of our calling and election. And that we would not be hypocrites who, are, who have who have fleshly reasons to be a part of a church, but that we would truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and love him and look forward to worshiping eternally in his presence, resting in an eternal Sabbath. Lord, I pray that we would not be like Esau. I pray that we would not be like Judas. I pray that you would indeed, through the power of Father, Son, and Spirit, keep us. Keep us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.